Well, as you know, this is probably the most predictable time of year when it comes to uh, the theme of beginning, new beginnings. And with beginning comes change. And New Year's Eve, of course, and New Year's Day, we try to change our eating habits. Didn't work for me. We try to uh, do new exercise routines. Um, we want to change. And our purpose of this morning is also that change. But we're going to talk about change in our households, change in our homes, changes in the place where we live to make something remodeled that was once broken. Now, if you know anything about change during the new year, especially with your home, you know how that begins. You go from room to room during the holidays, if you're anything like me, and you begin to notice just a few details are out of place. They've been out of place for a very long time, but you're so busy during the year, you don't notice it. And so you notice a little paint needs to be over here, and a little crown molding needs to be repaired over there. And so before you know it, New Year's approaches, and you've got a full-blown extreme makeover home edition. It's no longer just a little list that needs to be taken. It is massive renovation. If you don't know what I mean by extreme makeover home edition, that refers to a series that was very popular many years ago. It actually still is going on, all the way when my kids were very young, where you would see a house and a group of family have their home be completely revamped. Recently, our son just kind of rediscovered it. And so we've been going over some of the reruns, and I thought it might be an interesting premise for you. If you remember the premise, again, it has a family usually faced with some kind of intense personal hardship, usually the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, and then they come into their house that is eroding away, and they repair it while they're away on vacation for one week. And the usual approach is they come and they tear down the whole house in one day, then they rebuild it in a week, and the family comes back and they're astounded, and they see that every single room has been retooled, and everything has been uh, specifically contoured to the particular interests of each child for each room. And it really is an exceptional show. I mean, I know it's highly manipulative in its emotion, um, and so uh, sometimes knowing that, resisting that, I'm not going to get choked up. I get choked up because... (laughs) It's so predictable that these people have gone from nothing to something. But I don't want to talk about that today specifically. I want to talk about the condition of where we live uh, in our hearts and in our homes, the true condition. I'm not talking about transforming your apartment into a palace. I'm talking about how little things over a long period of time can become a reflection of your heart. Uh, A leaking faucet can become a flood. A blown fuse can become a rolling blackout. A decluttering of the garage can become a hoarder's nightmare. And as you start to piece together each one of these little projects, you start to realize, wait a second, this kind of reflects who I am. This reflects my heart. And I bring this to you this morning not to drive you to Home Depot this afternoon or anything like that, but it's just that there is something as a simile for our message today. If the Apostle Peter could have a message and clothe it in 21st century dress, he might call our time today Extreme Makeover Home Edition for each one of us this year. And I say that because we're going to go, again, back into the book of 1 Peter. We're going to dive back in today to some of the most amazing verses you'll probably ever have seen in terms of uh, the way he unpacks this. Our last section, if you remember, was 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where we dealt with husbands, how to live with their wives in an understanding way. And that was a very vital statement for us because the great apostle had just, remember, finished instructing the wives for six verses about how they were to submit to their husbands who were not living according to the word. So he had just spent actually seven verses addressing how husbands and wives should deal with one another And then the pressure from outside and inside the marriage tempts people to despair. And then, and this is where we're going to start today, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he begins to teach them the process, the process of, again, home edition, extreme makeover. It's an extreme makeover, meaning that he's going to teach them the process of how one might live their Christian life in the context of family in the context of family, and utterly transform and beautify from the inside out and restore not a house, but a home. And we'll see that today. This is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. This is how we're going to hopefully remodel our lives, remodel our marriages, remodel our relationships with one another, 
and maybe even remodel our relationship with the Lord himself. And that's what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to teach us this morning. So to kind of go back over some of these very important tools, it's as if Peter, had the great apostle, has had a moment in how he's been addressing each one of these individuals where he's now going to start to go back to this idea of the home, how the Christian home should function. This is going to be, I hope, very practical, very essential uh, home improvement plan for you today to take back to your home, to pray over, to think about, and to remind you of what it is that we're going to do in this new year. Now, let me give you a little context, because sometimes we come in and out of First Peter, and I think it's very good to kind of keep the context going so we understand where we're at. First Peter is a book written about righteous suffering, righteous suffering, and that's tremendously important because from the very first letter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he starts to talk about this little band of believers, these, these resident aliens living in Asia Minor in the first century, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have abandoned everything in their life for Jesus Christ, and now have begun to experience the most probable and most uh, predictable consequences of being a Christian, which is to suffer. So they start to suffer in this first world, this first century world. Chapter 1, verse 16 speaks of the unspeakable, rich, and awesome inheritance that awaits them. And yet Peter, from the very get-go, says, though that inheritance is yours, just so you know, if necessary, for a little while, you are going to have to suffer. You might have joy in the midst of the suffering, but for a little while, you will have to suffer. This is very important for us in the world that we're about to kind of embark in this year, because the more you love Christ... The more you long for Christ's return, the more you desire that wondrous salvation of his second coming, the more the world's going to crash upon you. It's just the way it is. There's no way to escape it. We just need to prepare for it. The moment they began to love Christ, everything broke loose. Nero was the Roman ruler at the time. He was a Christ-hating, sin-loving madman that tried to lie to the Roman people to tell them that Christians were the ones responsible for the burning of Rome. He accused them. He was arresting them. And then also, not only the government with Nero, but also we're told that all the people around them in first century Asia Minor, their neighbors, their employers, their masters, their families, they too were opposing them. So from the outside and from the inside, these new believers are being opposed because of their faith in Christ. The entire world is increasingly maligning them, belittling them, and persecuting them for their bizarre little faith that they have about this crucified Jew who was now having risen from the dead as the new Savior. So not only was the government attacking them, than hunting them and accusing them on every level, the ancient society was attacking them as well. Sound familiar? And to be a Christian at that time was to be a marked man, a marked woman. To be a Christian was to literally stand alone. There was no escape from ridicule. There was no escape from the day-in, day-out brutality of the world. And so, once they had endured all of this from the government, workplace, neighbors, what did they do? They retreat back home. And they retreat back into their homes and be with those people that they love the most. And what happens? The entire household at times would turn on them. You know, it's interesting in the gospel, it says all throughout that entire households were saved in the beginning. Uh, Like the Philippian jailer in the incident of the book of Acts 16, he and his entire clan were saved, it says. It also says that whole families would witness the power of the gospel's transformation when one member would instantly become saved, and then they would see that forgiveness being extended through the gospel to other people in their families. A husband would witness to his wife. The wife would witness to the children. Their children would witness to each other. And before long, sometimes the very same day, Jesus Christ would make himself at home in their hearts. And the entire family would worship Christ. Something of that we know in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, just to remind you, chapter 4, verse 53, it says that when the official from Capernaum implored Jesus to save his son, what did he do? He said, not only am I to save your son from physical death, but you and your whole household will believe. It says, he himself believed and his whole household. So God many times will show his complete compassion and kindness in bringing the whole house to faith 
But the vast majority of the time, as you know in your own life, especially probably right after Christmas has happened and you're kind of recalling all of the events that may have taken place, uh, usually he saves us all one at a time in our family and very few in our household. That's just his way. It's not the only way, but it's his way. Men and women meet as unbelievers. You get married. You, according to the traditions of your day, like billions of people have done for many, many years, families are born. The daily issues of life are ensued. And then once the gospel comes into your life, someone introduces you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, one by one, individuals start to understand, start to believe God opens hearts. They overhear facts about Christ. And one by one, individuals come to face the fact that they need to repent, that they're living in sin, that they have not believed on Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. One by one, these individuals radically are transformed by the Holy Spirit and the gospel truth. And then, one by one, they are increasingly alienated from the people around them. That has always been the fact, still to this day, and certainly was the fact in first century. So that's why, if I'm not going too fast, the Apostle Paul excuse me, wrote to his people in 1 Corinthians 7 that when unbelieving husbands find themselves instantly married now to wives who who love Jesus Christ, while the unbelieving wives are marveling at the fact that their husbands are saved, they don't want to leave them. Paul would say, don't leave them. Don't leave that unbelieving wife. If she consents to live with you, live with her, 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Because you're more blessed in a Christian home, even if there's one believer, than any other circumstance. You're more blessed. You'll have what I call an uncommon common grace extended to the children even, says that they become holy, not that they become saved, but there's an uncommon sanctification that happens just to be in the presence of another believer. So why am I saying this? Because the influence of the family is so important, and the influence of a Christian family is so important, so powerful. It might not happen instantly, but it does happen in Scripture, and hopefully it happens even in our own families as we see this happening in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. So we're going to do a little home makeover here. He tells Christians and Christian wives in chapter 3, verse 1, that women who had come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ are living now in households with men who are their husbands, who are unbelieving, and he, and he says to them, you should submit to them, you should live with them, chapter 3, verse 2, as chaste, respectful Christian women. Verse 3, not only beautiful on the outside, but also beautiful on the inside, the hidden person of the heart, which is quiet and gentle before God. They should be, as verse 1 says, submissive to their disobedient, unbelieving husbands. So if you look at the end of the verse, they might be one, the husbands without a word as to the salvation of their souls. So all of this commitment, All of this is happening and a godly demonstration of what can happen in a believer's home, even with an unbelieving spouse. They can be forced to see a home makeover. They can be forced to see this life before them that's so transformational that all they can respond to it is by saying, what has changed you? And this change isn't any kind of change. It was a change made by them unlike anything they'd ever seen before. You're loving when you're accused. You're submissive when you're dealt with unreasonably. You're kind when you're dealt with harshly. You turn the other cheek when you're scorned. You do good when others do evil to you. We're going to unpack this. This is home improvement on a divine level. This is a supernatural home repair. And so Peter addresses this radical kind of work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people by saying all throughout the first few verses of chapter 3, first, just follow me for a while, wives from verse 1 to 6, and then he moves to husbands in verse 7. And that's where we left off last week. Now today we come to a section of this wondrous letter where Peter begins in verse 8 through 12 to unfold a summation of everything that he has taught in a very powerful set of exhortations that he offers in chapter 2, verse 13, right up to chapter 3, verse 7. And I want to read this for you so you understand. He starts in chapter 3, verse 8. Now to sum up, all of you 
Be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. Now, look with me in that very first verse, in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, to sum up, to sum up. He is saying, now, I want to give you a summary of everything that I have just given to you thus far. I want to give you a summary. I want you to understand in just a few short verses here in chapter 3 what I've been trying to tell you this entire time. He tells who his audience is. He says that in verse 8 when he says, to sum up all of you, all of you. All of you is a genius way of him speaking to the family. And let me show you this. Contextually, and essentially, he is speaking to husbands and wives. That's who he's spoken to in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. That's who he's spoken to in verse 7. Husbands and wives. And then he says, all of you. So he's starting to speak of the household of God. He's starting to speak of people that live with one another. Households are struggling. Households might be struggling not just because they contain spouses that are unequally yoked, though that is a great, great uh, sacrifice for many people, but he's speaking of households that even include, if you go back in chapter 2, those who are in their own household as slaves. He says, servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all fear. So the greater context of this is just not just struggling households as man and wife, but also by implication, the children that they might have, the slaves who work within their household, everyone in this Christian household in general is being addressed. You could actually go all the way back to uh, the very beginning of this and say he's talking to everybody in the whole book, and that would be a point. But the key is Peter's addressing internal issues that exist within the Christian home, okay? Is that pretty appropriate for New Year's Day or New Year's uh, Sunday? I thought it would be. Uh, I didn't plan it this way. God planned it this way. But I thought it was a very effective thing because all of you is all of us. All of you in verse 8 is speaking to this extreme makeover home edition. And there is a wider context, as I said, and I want you to understand this. From chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, the real emphasis of the whole book at that point has been the believer's response to an unbelieving world. So the reason that your home should be in good shape or believing shape is because there's an unbelieving world watching. He says that in chapter 2, verse 13, to the unbelieving government. Chapter 2, verse 18, to the unbelieving masters. And then he speaks to these believers, chapter 1, verse 14, as a family. He speaks of everyone in this book, in fact, as a family. He speaks of believers as a family. So let me kind of wrap this thought up for you. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, as obedient children. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, if you address as father, speaking of God. Chapter 1, verse 22, they're to have a sincere love for the brethren. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes. Uh, You're to be, in chapter 2, verse 5, built up to a spiritual house. Chapter 2, verse 17, spiritual brotherhood, love the brotherhood. So, In the larger context, Peter's including not just Christian responses to trials at home, he's speaking to trials outside the home and inside the home as a Christian family. He blends those two ideas together almost seamlessly. So we're only going to have two points together. I can tell people are retired, and I've I've only got 35 minutes left, and people are dozing off, and I think I could just whisper, and it might help you. I get it. I get it. Uh, That's okay. Uh, I only slept four hours myself. That's cool. Uh, so obviously wrapped up too much and going too fast. So I'm going to pull back, be a little slower here. I'm going to pull you in because I think it's some really important things. So I'm going to give you two vital aspects of biblical home improvement, two vital aspects to biblical home improvement. If you're ever going to spiritually remodel your home, two blueprints, if you will, look at it that way, to revitalize your Christian home from the inside out. 
And remember, even though the immediate context of this comes from the idea of husbands and wives, it's really the whole idea of the Christian life being integrated as a household, being thought of as a household. And this is important for a few reasons. Um, Let me just kind of go through them today. There's a very powerful tendency, I think, in the Christian life, and I know it's true, that we just live separate lives from each other. We, 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 We are here together in the same room today, but we kind of live lives that are separate. There's a powerful, powerful seduction in the American kind of Christian world to just pull us away and to be isolated from one another. By isolating ourselves away from each other, we, we just have these brief moments on Sunday mornings, which are important. It's, it's important, true, that Christians be faithful to be involved with each other on the Lord's Day. It's true, it's essential that you are here, join heirs for accountability in your Bible studies. Morning worship is wonderful. Evening worship, baptisms is going to be great. Bookend opportunities to kind of begin the new year and really focus on fellowship. But even once you've done that, even once you've done all of that, it's really easy not to become a part of the family. It's really easy to kind of exist in a way that doesn't seem as if really Grace Church or God's family is your family. There, there must be more to your commitment than just a Sunday morning exposition of Scripture and singing. There has to be more than, than just you coming to join heirs, which if you stop coming, it's going to kill me. But, but it, 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 there's got to be more to it than just this. It has to be that we have to look deep down inside to see if we are being consistent in our relationships with one another and within our own households. Uh, your, your attendance to join heirs is essential. But even with that said, Even if you never miss a Sunday, you can begin to isolate yourself from other people and just kind of phone it in. And here it is, and I'm doing my thing, and I showed up, and and I I listened to Tom, and listened to John Street and John MacArthur, and I went home, and that's the totality of my Christian life. So you need to know there's a tremendous burden I have that that not be the case, that there be more to this than just that. And I get this reason from the Scripture itself, because the Scripture's driving us toward this idea of family. Don't let the busyness of this life, don't let the thousands of distractions that bombard you keep you away from true accountability. I want you to see this fellowship group as your fellowship group. I want you to see this time together as joint heirs as a priority. I want you to come here every single Lord's Day of your life ready to serve each other with conversations. I want you to reach out to those families that you're not connected to here, maybe that you don't know that well. I want you to think about others and how you could serve them. And I want you to stop thinking only about the individual families that you know and love here, but the family of God, the family of God here specifically at Join Ears. I know this is going to sound harsh, but I don't want you to talk to people that you already know. I want you to talk to people you don't know. I want you to go to lunch with people that you have never gone to lunch with. I want you to hang out with people that you don't always hang out with. There's countless of people who have come here who are just the loveliest people, the loveliest people, and yet I know them, but no one else knows them. And they leave, and I'm thinking, well, what a great opportunity that was to get to meet someone, and just actually, after a while, it starts to make you kind of sad because you're missing some incredible people and getting to know them within the confines of the family of God. So from the leadership all the way down to the newest visitor, and I don't even know who was visiting today, uh, after, after your joke, they might have left already. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but we're the household of God, and we need to be building up each other to love and good deeds. So let me just give you a couple of points today. I'll do the best I can just to give you some home improvement ideas. The first blueprint, if you want a blueprint, for your home improvement Christian home. Number one, it comes from an understanding of the interior design is selflessness. If you're going to make this whole metaphor, the interior design is selflessness. If you want to improve your home life, both inside and outside of the church, you must begin by redesigning the inside of your home with sweet attitudes and selflessness. Sweet attitudes and selflessness. Just like an interior decorator coming in to your home and throwing some color and design here or there, you need to be throwing some godly warmth and color into your home by the way you have your attitudes. And Peter says this in verse 8 and 9. 
Now, to sum up all of you, be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, you probably didn't notice real quickly, but there's six different attitudes there. And I'm going to go through those six different attitudes that I'm going to consider uh, for you as interior design remodel. This is how you design it differently on the inside. We're going to look at them quickly. Six attitudes that really focus on believers and to create unity, not only within joint heirs, Grace Community Church, not only your Bible study, but your home. So let's look at them. First of all, Peter says that they must all have the same attitude. The same attitude, verse 8. Like-minded in some translations. I am now using the uh, legacy standard translation. I love it. I think it's a beautiful uh, translation. I might end up having to go back to a new American standard because they're not coming out with the big print till later on this year. And this is very difficult. And I thought it would work, but it doesn't work. And you don't, and you don't want to try it out on Sunday morning for the first time, but there I did it. Um, <laughs> So let's look at it. Same attitude of one mind. Harmonious is another translation. The Greek word, it's only used here in all the New Testament, although Paul says basically the same thing in Romans 15. It means to be oneness in opinion. We have the same opinion. We have the same thought. We're like-minded in our outlook, in our attitude, our disposition, and our sentiment. So it, it terms, the term is being at home with the idea of Ideal friendships, ideal friendships. You must all have the same attitude that may be expressed as this. You must all think the same way about life. That is so important. That's what John is doing every single Sunday morning. He's trying to recalibrate our thinking that we're on the same page, that we have that one obsession, as he said today, really about holiness and sanctification. It's trying to get all of us to be thinking the same way about what God says, Also, you must all have the same attitude expressed and you must think the same way about life and you should all think the same way about what you should do in life. That's the idea underlining it all. You could almost say you must think about life in the same way together. They must have also, the second term is, the same feelings. We should have the same feelings for one another. It says feel sympathy for one another, sympathetic as the Legacy Standard Bible has it. Again, the Greek adjective here is only used here in the whole New Testament. Uh, Peter's doing something very remarkable, and it means sharing the feelings of others, uh, sharing the joy or the sorrow of others. Uh, Sometimes you could interpret it as empathy or sympathy, depending on how you look at the very fine kind of details of those words. But the idea is that you're home in the household. You have a mother's compassion for her children. You feel sympathy. You you have this idea that we see also in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. You have a heart toward the people in your home. Just to go there quickly, Pastor John was speaking of it earlier when he was in Romans 12, but just to kind of cover back through that, Romans 12, verse 15 through 19 It is interesting how the scripture repeats itself and continues to emphasize the same point over and over again. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and be of the same mind towards one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. He goes on to say, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is the same idea in 1 Peter verse chapter 3. We must all have the same feelings towards one another. You could say it this way. You must feel sympathy for what happens to each of us. We must have empathy for what happens to one another. Our hearts should go out to one another. You should feel pain when others are hurt and feel happy when other people rejoice. He says, going on in 1 Peter 3, they must love one another as brothers because, again, verse 8, brotherly, not only like-minded, sympathetic, but brotherly, love one another as a brother should love one another. 
have to admit, last night was such a wonderful time for me. I was, couldn't sleep, uh, had a lot of thoughts in my head. This wasn't completely finished. And so I went in the other room, and my boys were laughing. And uh, it was way too late. They shouldn't have been up. And uh, I, I just got a moment and said, yeah, I've got so many thoughts in my head. I can't sleep. And, uh, but it's just so wonderful to hear you guys laugh with one another. So, it's so great to hear you guys love one another. I mean, my, my boys... 20, almost 18, almost 16, they like each other. They, they love each other. And my one son said, Dad, you know, don't feel bad if this didn't happen. He goes, because I was lost for a long time. He goes, but he goes, it's really not you that did it or you that didn't do it. It's just you were faithful to teach us the steps and God opened our hearts to the way. So, so but, but that's what a heart does. It rejoices with the fact that you see that brothers love one another it says that they must be tender-hearted, verse 8. Brotherly, tender-hearted, meaning they have to be kind. And this is a very strange word in the Greek, uh, splantnik, which means internal organs. Uh, it, it, it's like you, viscerally, you need to love somebody like when you do from your heart, but the heart is not in, used in that way in the Bible. It's from your guts. You love someone from the guts. People say the bowels, but it just disconnects you when you think of that. It's from the gut, <laughs> right? You, kinda, you can't relate to it. You go, I love you with my guts. You go, I get that. I, I can understand that. So in the New Testament, to have that kind of deep feeling for someone in terms of love, compassion, pity, and kindness is what a Christian is to have for others in his household. Perhaps no English expression is strong enough to kind of capture this, but it's, you should be deeply concerned for one another. And I will tell you something, that hurts. It hurts to be concerned for other people. People are messy, and I've told you this before. It's very easy to come in and, and check off a box and speak to one another and smile and move, and we need to do that. We're called to do that. But to have deep concern for someone when they're struggling, when they're hurting, is something that is very powerful. And sometimes it's scary. And sometimes you don't want to go there because now you have to go down that very long road with someone. You can keep my niece in prayer. She got married in uh, April uh, they got pregnant during their honeymoon, and they lost their baby in November uh, before it was born. And my heart just goes out to her so much, and it hurts. In fact, she texts me, and i um, not intending to read this to you, but just so that you know the, the depth of her pain. She says, if, if you remember any positive memories about me, could you please let me know? I feel so much in despair. So uh, her name's Kaylee. You can pray for her, and I'm going to call her later today. But, but it hurts to love someone that deep, and that's exactly what we're called to do, however. And, and in the view of everything, it's like keep people deeply connected to yourself. Let kindness demonstrate how you feel for others. Also, verse 8, they must be humble in spirit. Peter says, humble in spirit. This is all under the idea of the internal design that needs to take place for this new blueprint. They must be humble. And you know, I think humility, is, as soon as I was studying this, it was not a very great virtue in the Hellenistic world, just so you know. In fact, it's, it was always thought of as a weakness. To be humble was to be weak. Uh, the attitude of Jesus, for instance, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, has always influenced Christians for a long time to think of humility uh, as a virtue rather than a weakness. But to the world, Jesus was a weak man, not a strong man. An expression equivalent to that would be, don't feel proud about yourself. Don't make yourself a big shot. Make yourself small and make God great. Uh, find a way to humble yourself before others. And again, I want you to think of this, and I don't know if this is all connecting, but all of this is in the concept of a household. This is called household language, as one commentator put it. This is the language of a household in our relationships. And what is interesting to me is Peter is understanding this within the context of a Mediterranean Roman household where the hierarchy was very, very important. Uh, you had a place for everyone, and everybody had a place. There was a way things had to be done. But here, Peter is saying, no, the idea is of brotherhood. The idea is sympathy and common life. I'm not saying being sympathetic for people's sin. I'm not saying being sympathetic for the fact that, oh, yes, I see you continue to struggle with your sin against me. We're going to get into that in a while. No, I'm saying that you can empathize with that and love them without necessarily 
giving approval of that. And we see that in verse 9 as we continue. He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I probably have referred to this verse more time in counseling than any other verse in First Peter. You're with a man and a woman, and they're having a hard time, and I would sit there and say, I want you to read this. How are you to be? Well, it says very clearly, you're not to return evil for evil. You're not to turn, return reviling for reviling. You're to bless one another. For some reason, that is such a shockingly difficult thing for some people. One translation puts it this way, never return evil for evil or insult for insult by scolding, tongue lashing, berating. But on the contrary, blessing, pray for their welfare, happiness and protection, and truly pitying and loving them. This is the idea that God may, you may obtain a blessing from God bringing happiness into this person's life. I think that really hits us to me. It really hits, puts the rubber to the road if you ask me. I was having coffee the other day with a man who was struggling in his marriage and at times would blow up and yell at his wife. And so we decided to meet so we could talk it over. And once I read this verse to him, he said, that's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of man I long to be. That's what the kind of man I want my children to know me as. I, I want to be that kind of godly man. And I said, well, that's good because that's exactly the kind of godly man you're called to be. That's who you're supposed to be. We were called. This is in the aorist tense. It defines it's, it's an historical event. An action has been completed. God called you. This is called an effectual call by theologians. God called you toward this end. And called is a passive voice which means, again, God is the one initiating this action of calling us and emphasize God's sovereign work. He's invited you into the family, and he's given you the pr- privilege of inheriting this blessing. So he, Peter says, now be that kind of man. Be that kind of woman in the face of suffering. But you have to have your internal design realtered. You have to learn to be selfless for Christ. And I understand how difficult that is. Because selflessness doesn't come naturally. That's why we're instructed for it to happen. But because of the Spirit of God that lives in us, you can put the brakes on your pride. And you can recalibrate your thinking. And in the midst of an argument, you can sit there and say, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong. You're totally right. I've told people this for years. Don't win arguments. Win people. I, 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 I can argue. I can, I can debate. I've never won anything good out of it. I've never gotten anything out of it except just a, a slight alienation from the person that I love, as opposed to try to win the person, love them, bring them to yourself. That's the first blueprint. The second thing is to remember, the second blueprint for, a, for you to follow is to revitalize your Christian home from the inside out. Number one, the interior design is to be selfless. And number two, the floor plan is Scripture. So your interior design is selflessness, and the floor plan to your life is Scripture. Let me show you how that happens. Now, if you look in your Bible, most of you are going to see that verse 10 through 12 is in all caps. Do you see that? So if it's in all capital letters, that means it's a reference to the Old Testament. You know that. But just to make sure. So again, let me go over this. For the one who desires life to live and see good days, if that's what you want, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So again, notice with me, verse 10, the word starts with four. What I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to reason with you is all that I've told you in verses 8 and 9 And now I'm going to immediately launch into a paraphrase of Psalm 34. He he, he has a paraphrase here to adapt to his listeners' kind of attention, Psalm 34. Originally, just so you know, if it sounded familiar to you, you know Psalm 34. Psalm 34 was written by David as he lifted up his heart before God when he was in danger and he was afraid. And he was asking and beseeching the Lord to help him, and he 
allowed, God did, for David to fall into the hands of the Philistines. And so David started acting like a madman. Do you remember this? And his beard, he had saliva in it. He wanted to make himself look like he was insane so that they would let him go. And in the midst of that scenario from the Old Testament, he begins to celebrate the goodness of God. He begins to magnify the Lord's name. And he tells of how those who truly seek the Lord in times like that, in times of trouble, where you don't see a way out, where you can't see your life ever changing or becoming the things you want to be or having the things you wanted to have, he tells people that he, God will rescue you as he rescued David. This is the implication. And then in verse 12 of the psalm, he begins to express the same thoughts that we have here in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. And he changes the beginning a little bit from the Old Testament Septuagint. Instead of, instead of it being, who is the man who desires life, as it says in Psalm 34, he alters it a bit through his inspired ability through the Holy Spirit to say, the one who desires life. Instead of saying, who is the man who desires life, he says, the one who desires life, implication being, you desire life. You want life. I know that about you. He's not asking these resident Christians, uh, who of you want life? He goes, I know you want life. I know you want to love life and see good days in your family. I know that's your New Year's resolution, if you will. And I know that with all your heart, you want to live on earth with joy and blessing and love. And you can have those things, but you must only refrain from speaking evil, verse 11. You must also do good. He must turn away from evil, verse 11, and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Can I tell you this is essential for home improvement? This would be one of the most important things. And what Peter wants to point out to you here is his twofold purpose using this psalm. So I'm breaking down this second point into two just minor kind of reminders here. First, he's saying, that very clearly the reason the Christian is able to live in such a selfless way before those who would ridicule him is he's connected to his view of Scripture. It's connected to his view of Scripture. That's why he supplies the Old Testament quotation here. The reason we do what we do, and I got this from Pastor John's message this morning, and maybe maybe it's just because I was thinking about this as he was preaching. The motivation for long-suffering The underlining desire that literally makes our hearts cling to these kind of precepts in our lives is because we recognize the foundation, the floor plan of our life is the Word of God. That's why we, we, it resonates with us. That's why when this is said, no matter who the preacher is, you, because you have the Spirit of God living in you, said, yes, that's true, because that's the foundation. And though Peter himself is pinning the Scripture Uh, at the time when Scripture was still being written, and the only Scripture to these dear people was the Old Testament, he connects the dots for them in a way that's very, very interesting and connects the present trauma of their history to everybody who's ever suffered in Scripture. He's saying, in essence, and this is key, regardless of the hardship of your home, hear this, regardless of the hardship of your home and the struggles you deal with between man and wife, between redeemed and unredeemed, between master and emperor, between those who persecute you and those who have marginalized you, I have a secret for total success. I have a floor plan for a happy life. And it begins with this. You must find the reason that you do what you do to be rooted in the glorious truths of God's revelation. Simple thing that we must be reminded of constantly. God's word is my motivation because God's word reveals to me the mind of God. I know God because I know Scripture. I know who Christ is because I know what Scripture says of Christ. I cannot know God unless I know his word. Listen, you cannot motivate yourself with pep talks. Everybody's doing this right now. Oh, my goodness, right? Uh, New Year's resolution, motivational speaker. Here's another motivational speaker. If you just do this and try harder, I mean, I'm off of Facebook. I can't watch it anymore. It's just, it's too much, you know. It's just literally, I start to feel... Sorry, nauseated, because everybody's got your back, and you can do more. You can climb Mount Everest, and I'm sitting there going, no, you can't. I'd die. So I think that would be, you know, so you you listen to all this. You cannot keep yourself (laughs) into a a state of mind where you listen to that. You can't pep talk yourself all the time. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Actually, last night, I'm sitting there going, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. You cannot keep yourself being one mind, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, 
humble in face of conflict and confusion by convincing yourself over and over again that these are really noble things. That I, I've got, this is what a, a good man or a good woman does. This will make me a more evolved human being. The reason we persevere under trials, the reason we don't return evil for evil and insult for insult is because we believe with all our hearts that God has told us in his word that that's what he desires from us. And if we are truly his, if we are truly heaven bound, we're going to find our greatest strength and motivation in becoming what he has called us to become and to live the very words. And I'm not saying anybody here does it perfectly. And I know, I think even that phrase is overdone. No one even does it close to being perfect because no one is perfect except the one who's in heaven who's interceding on our behalf. So it's not about, oh, we're, we're almost there. No, we're all miserable, fallen sinners who have the Holy Spirit within us that allows us to believe with all our hearts that God can change us through his word. And that's the first reason, I think, that Peter gives us Psalm 34. But there's a second reason here. A second reason he gives us Psalm 34, the second reason that the Scripture, God's Word, is the foundation to this model remake, and that is because it also teaches us to trust not only God's Word, but God's ways. It teaches us to not only trust in God's Word, but God's ways. And that being this, he says at the very end, for the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, the face of the Lord. He is telling you something very important to me as well. God is watching us. God is watching us, and God is watching our adversaries as well, and he knows who's against you because the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and he also sees the unrighteous. His ears are attuned to your prayers and not the prayers of others. And I think that's very, very important. That connects us back to our home improvement plan, doesn't it, husbands, that we talked about last time, which was the exact point he was making in verse 7 when he warns husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way because as long as you honor her, regardless of the situation, God will honor you, but God will not hinder your prayers if you're living with her in an understanding way. You continue to live selflessly, man. You continue to serve those that you love and your wife with compassion, and you continue to decide in every moment of the day to be a blessing when you could totally not be a blessing because you know that God hears your cries and cares about your communication to him, or otherwise he will cut you off. Because if you dishonor her, if you take matters into your own hands, then please, please don't wonder why nothing ever seems to change. Why does nothing ever seem to change? And I'm not making this up. Clearly, he says in God's word here in verse 7, so that your wives, in an understanding way, as a weaker vessel since she is a woman, very end of verse 7, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so your prayers will not be hindered. God listens to the righteous, and he does not listen to those that do not take home improvement seriously. All those who are doing evil, God sees them too. He sees it all. He sees all the ones that do evil, and he will not be fooled. You know, years ago, I came across a book, you know it, called My Heart, Christ Home. Pastor John just mentioned it a few weeks ago uh, in one of his sermons, I knew of it before then. Uh, in fact, at the Christmas concerts, a very kind lady came up to me, and she said, thank you so much for preaching Sunday night on your birthday. It meant so much. And I go, oh, well, you're so welcome. And she said, especially the thing I remember the most is when you talked about that, how Christ is in the room of every, every room of our home. And I said, I didn't mention that. That was Pastor John. I, and I said, but... <laughs> I go, thank you, you know. <laughs> That's my whole, my whole life, you know. Thank you for what you said. I didn't say that, but God knows who said it. I'm glad you're blessed. <laughs> I've had people come up to me all the time after sermons, not you guys specifically, but uh, who have come up, and I've just preached this whole thing, and people will come up and go, I love it when you said that thing about blah, 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 and I'm going, I didn't say that. <laughs> That's what you heard, but that's not what I said. <laughs> but 
I have a copy of that. And in this book, if you, if you haven't read it, it's a really skinny little book. It's so worth it. You could, you could probably download it for free, a PDF online, My Heart Christ Home. It has this idea that since Jesus Christ reigns in the human heart of every believer, everybody who places their faith in him, that he has a home, a home in your heart and in my heart. And Jesus makes permanent residence. All of his supernatural abode is within the heart of those whom he has saved. And so if you go through the book, he beautifully just unfolds for you like a guided tour of the home of each room that Christ asks about. And he mentions the study where you fill your mind. And he speaks of the kitchen where you consume what you consume. And he speaks of the dining room and the living room and the work room and the bedroom and the hall closet where all the secrets are held. And the book's implication is, very clearly, I, Christ, want dominion in every room. I want dominion in every room of your house. The essence of that book is in our house, demonstrated by a piece of art that we have, a little metal piece of art, and it hangs over our entranceway to the kitchen, and it says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest in every room. Listen, the ultimate motivation for home improvement is that. That we live before an unseen guest who sits with us at every meal and who offers us forgiveness at every turn. He is the author of selflessness. He is the one that modeled it the most. As 1 Peter 2 23 says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. To him, may I add, who is unseen. So Peter has transitioned from wives in verse 1 to husbands in verse 7. And to, to sum it up, all of you. All of you, not just those, but perhaps every believer in this book, but specifically to the home where he says, this is now to sum up the book, what the next floor plan for your life should be. Let's think about that for this new year. Let's think about what the Lord might be challenging us to do in terms of change, in terms of not just changing our eating habits and our exercise routine, but Let's truly consider how to change the home from inside. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message, and I know that it's needed in my heart, and I ask that it might be also needed in the heart of those who have come here and have never really thought about home improvement, never really thought of a rescue attempt to revitalize what maybe is dwindling. Your word has already said that we should seek peace as far as it concerns us, as far as it depends upon us. But we also pray for those that live with us, that you would give them a heart towards you. For those that we live with that are not saved, I pray that you would save not only our children, but our spouses. For those of us that live in homes where both are believers and children are believers, we thank you for that privilege, but still ask that you would humble us and keep us sympathetic toward one another and loving one another from the heart. For this world and the chaos that we see around us is so tempting to allow ourselves to spin out of control instead of rooting ourselves more deeply in your scripture and what we know to be true. Bless us with these thoughts today, and thank you for all that has happened thus far. In Christ's name we pray, amen.